And uh, at this time, I'd like to have us turn to our text for this morning, uh, which is John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. And I know it says uh, verses 1 through um, 13 or 15 um, in the worship folders, but when you're the pastor, you can change that when you want. Plus, it was less for me to memorize, so... Uh, we're continuing a sermon series looking at the, the seven signs uh, that, that John records in his gospel and, and how each of them reveals a different aspect of, of who Jesus is um, as our Lord and Savior. And so we're going to continue that sermon series this morning by looking at the third of those signs uh, that John records. And it actually comes right after uh, the one we let, looked at two weeks ago um, at the end of John chapter 4. And so uh, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and this is what the text says. Sometime later, uh, right after the events of of chapter 4, Jesus went up to Jerusalem uh, for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who had been there uh, was an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone always goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, uh, a few years ago, Sarah and I took our first big vacation as a married couple. Uh, We went on a nine-day trip to London, England, and Paris, France. And while we were in those two cities, uh, we did our best to to see all of the sights that you're supposed to see as a tourist. Uh, In London, for instance, we took a ride on the famous London Eye uh, Ferris wheel. We toured the Tower of London and saw the crown jewels on display. Uh, We visited Westminster Abbey, uh, the Borough Market, and Buckingham Palace, and we even saw a play at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre right on the uh, Thames River. In Paris, meanwhile, we climbed the Eiffel Tower, walked through Notre Dame, and ate authentic French crepes in a back street uh, cafe that we found uh, downtown. And in both cities, I also dragged Sarah to every single history museum that was open. Um, I kid you not, she actually fell asleep standing up in one of them. And I, on the other hand, loved every second of it. Now, in her defense, that was right at the, the day after we had flown in on a red eye. So um, we were both pretty tired. But In other words, we did all the regular touristy things that you're supposed to do when you're in a new city. We saw all the big attractions that we were supposed to see. We visited all the major noteworthy sites that everyone who had been to those two cities before had told us we needed to visit. Um, generally, we went to the places that you're supposed to go when you're touring through a new city. You know who doesn't seem to do that, though? Who doesn't seem to visit all the hot spots, take in all the sights, and see all the major attractions? Um, You know who doesn't do the sorts of things that you're supposed to do when going to a new city? Jesus. In fact, it seems he did exactly the opposite. And that's because when we encounter him here in this text, having just arrived in the major city of his day, Jerusalem, Jesus doesn't go where you're supposed to go. 
He doesn't see all the sorts of sights that you're supposed to see. He doesn't spend time with the kind of people that you're supposed to go and spend time with. Instead, in a very real sense, you could say that Jesus is kind of an anti-tourist here in this passage. Going to the places that no one else went, visiting the people that no one else cared about, and doing things that no one else would do, or for that matter, could do, either. This text opens with Jesus in Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals, and the Apostle John, who's the author of this gospel, doesn't tell us which one of those festivals it was, and it doesn't really seem to matter anyway. What does matter is that Jesus is in Jerusalem here. And what also matters is what part of the city he's in. You see, Jesus, when we encounter him in this text, he's not at the temple, you know, marveling at the stonework and talking all about the impressive architecture. Uh, He's not visiting the palace, waiting for the changing of the guard or hoping to catch a glimpse of the royal family. He's not even checking into a hostel or a hotel or looking for a nice restaurant to grab a bite to eat. Instead, we find Jesus here in this text in a rather mysterious place called Bethesda. It's not a tourist trap on the main drag of, of Jerusalem, surrounded by souvenir shops and trendy cafes. Instead, Bethesda is a gathering place for the broken and bruised, the disgraced and humble, the sick, forgotten, and ignored. In his commentary on this passage, Fred Bruner writes, When Jesus arrived at the festival in Jerusalem, he did not go to the palace or to the places of mass appeal in the city, but instead he went to the place of major need. In other words, upon arriving in Jerusalem, Jesus didn't do what Sarah and I did when we were visiting London and Paris a few years ago. He didn't look up the travel guide recommendations and go to check them out. He didn't follow the crowd. He didn't head where everyone else was going to do the sorts of things that everyone else was doing. Instead, he showed up at a spot that was more or less a combination of a homeless shelter, a first aid clinic, and a religious shrine all put together in one. And there, at Bethesda, we're told that he met a man. The text says that this man was an invalid and that he'd been that way for 38 years. You know, I never really thought about this until I started reading some of the commentaries on this passage a few weeks ago. But that word, invalid, is actually a compound word in English. It's made up of two other words that we use in our language. The first one is the prefix in, meaning not, as in incomplete or ineligible or inconspicuous. And then the second part is the word valid. And so to call someone an invalid literally means that they are in or not valid. Now the original meaning of the word valid in English coming from its Latin root validus is strong. That's what that word originally meant. And so historically to refer to someone as valid meant that they were powerful, vigorous, and healthy. And so if you take it that way, you can see why this text uses that word to describe this man, right? Because he's not that way. He's not strong. He's not vigorous. He's not healthy. In fact, quite the opposite. From what this text tells us, it seems that this man is more or less paralyzed and can do little more than lie by this pool each day, hoping for a chance to somehow get in the water and be healed. And yet, as I was reflecting on that, that word, invalid, 
I think if we're honest with ourselves, that's not really what that word means anymore, is it? Instead, these days to be valid doesn't mean to be strong or powerful. Instead, to be valid means to be agreeable, adequate, or acceptable. And to be honest, when it comes to people like the man here in this text, often we don't see them that way. We don't see people who are weak, sick, or have some sort of disability as valid in either the historical or the modern sense of the word. We don't see them as people we want to engage with, people we want to visit, people that we want to seek out and spend time with. Despite our rich and, I believe, correct theology as Christian believers, that every human being, regardless of race, gender, background, ability, or any other category, is made in the image of God and therefore worthy of inherent dignity and respect. Despite that rich theology, I think we sometimes find it hard to treat people like this man that way. We're often tempted instead to look down on those of less ability than ourselves and see them as invalids, not just in terms of their strength, power, or health, but in terms of their usefulness, acceptability, and benefit to society as well. That's a natural result of our sinful nature as human beings. And as Christians, it's something that we need to repent of, fight against, and work to correct. You see, this man's life would have been hard enough as it is without people constantly looking down on him. Uh, One of the commentaries I read on this passage cited a lecture by Dr. Dwight N. Peterson, who served as a professor of New Testament studies at Eastern University. Uh, As a biblical scholar, Peterson was able to illustrate the historical background and context for what this man's life would have been like. Um, But as a paraplegic himself, Confined to a wheelchair since 1979, Peterson was also able to add a personal perspective to this text that most other scholars don't have. For instance, according to Peterson, this man's methods of mobility would have been severely limited. And there were no wheelchairs back then, no motorized scooters, no ADA accessibility standards. And so if this man wanted to do something as simple as move from one place to another, he likely would have had to crawl and because of his paralysis, use only his elbows and arms, dragging his feet behind him. Either that, or he would have needed other people to assist him and help move him. Having other people help him, though, would have been unlikely given his hygiene. As Dr. Peterson explains, again from personal experience, paraplegics of the kind that this man probably was frequently don't have control over their bladders or bowel the same way that that we do. And so it would have been hard for them to get to the bathroom in time. And that's still the case today, but it would have been even more so back then, before the days of indoor plumbing and public restrooms. And so as a result, says Dr. Peterson, this man's hygiene problem would have been very difficult for him. And that would have meant that people would have avoided him. He wouldn't have had friends. His family may or may not still have been in his life and taking care of him. But either way, he was probably a lonely person who was rejected and ignored most of the time by most people. Day after day, he would have been walked by. People would have looked the other way. Some of them might have even given him a wide berth as they passed him. His only ability to make money in that time and culture would have been begging. His only activity would have been laying down or sitting up, propped against the wall. And his only hope was somehow some way to get into this pool at Bethesda and hope that the waters there could heal him. 
You see, the way that the shrine at Bethesda seemed to work was this. Occasionally, the water of that pool would, would start to bubble up. Archaeologists think that it was a spring-fed pool. You can still visit this, uh, this pool, by the way. Um, I've actually been there. It's in the shadow of where the temple once stood in Jerusalem. Um, and so from time to time, that hydrothermal activity in the pool would cause the waters to swirl. The local legend, though, was that it was an angel that caused the waters to move. And the idea was that when that happened, if you were the first person to get in, at least so the story went, then you would be healed of whatever disease or limitation you experienced. The shrine, I don't think, seemed very successful, though. After all, this man had been there for, well, at least he had been this way for 38 years and had been at that shrine for who knows how long. And yet, it hadn't worked for him. Finally, though, one day, Along came the one who John has been telling us throughout his gospel is the true son of the true God. And so the question becomes, what will happen now? This man has laid here at this shrine hoping that it would heal him. Now that Jesus has showed up, will he be able to do that instead? And what's interesting, I think, is that this man doesn't seem to think so. He doesn't really put a lot of trust or faith in Jesus. Jesus shows up in this shady back alley off the beaten path place in Jerusalem. He spots this man. He walks over to him, asks him, do you want to get well? And the man more or less ignores the question. Sir, he replies, I have no one to help me get into the pool when the water is stirred. While I am trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. As Leon Morris writes in his commentary here, the man does not regard Jesus as a possible healer. This is not surprising, for he did not even seem to know who Jesus was. His thoughts were all on the curative properties only of the pool. In other words, Jesus shows up, he asks this man a question, but this man can't imagine that Jesus might be the, the solution he's looking for. This man has been paralyzed for 38 years. He's a social outcast. He's a beggar. He's an invalid. He's laid at this pool for who knows how long. He's probably tried some other get-well-quick get, uh, get schemes as well. And yet now that he finds himself in the presence of someone who can actually do for him what he's hoping will happen, who can actually heal him, he ignores him. He ignores Jesus. He's got tunnel vision because he's only focused on this supposed miracle pool and the help that it can give him. He thinks that's his only chance for healing, his only chance for restoration, his only chance for what he wants and needs. And I think it's easy for us sometimes, um, as people 2,000 years later, to kind of scoff at that sort of thing, right? Sometimes when I read scripture, I have to remind myself uh, that the people in the Bible didn't know what we know now. Uh, this man didn't know who Jesus was the way that we know who he is today. And even if he had, he wouldn't have known then so early in Jesus' ministry everything else that was still to come. We have the benefit of hindsight when we read scripture. We know when Jesus shows up here at this pool who this man is dealing with. We know how this story turns out. But this man didn't. And yet even though that's the case, even though we know all of that, even though we know what's coming in the story and who Jesus is, even though we have the benefit of hindsight and all of the details that this man didn't, I think we still make the same mistake sometimes. After all, how many other things do we find ourselves trusting in in place of Jesus in our lives? The list of possibilities is long. 
For instance, we might trust in our reputation, our social position, our relational capital and popularity. We might trust in our status, the symbols that prove it or how other people see and think about us. We might trust in our education, our jobs, our economic stability and well-being. We might trust in our relationships, our romantic accomplishments, and the fact that we're well-liked, appreciated, and desired. Increasingly, it seems recently, we might trust in our politics, our preferred candidate or party platform, over and above everything else, Christ included. If we could just, if only, if I just had the chance to, and then we fill in the blank with something, then I'd be happy. Then we'd finally be headed in the right direction. Then all that's wrong with the world would be right. In other words, even today, like this man at the pool, we still seek healing in other options, in other places, and in other people than Christ. And yet the truth is that the healing and restoration we need as human beings can only come from Christ. That's not to say that other kinds of, uh, other kinds of healing and restoration don't matter. Uh, it's not to say that we shouldn't work on the broken areas of our lives and our world. It's not to say that we shouldn't receive help and healing from other sources. If we're sick, we should see a doctor. If we need a tutor, if we're struggling in school, then we should find a tutor. Um, if we're out of work, we should look for a job. All I'm saying is that those things and all the other possibilities for us to put our trust in other than Christ, they can't replace Christ. Because in response to this man's tunnel vision on the pool and its supposed healing qualities, Jesus speaks to him again. He's asked him the question, do you want to get well? And now Jesus says just three short statements, three short commands. Get up, pick up your mat, walk. And that's all it takes. This text says that at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. And again, like we said when we looked at the passage just before this, at the end of chapter 4, two weeks ago, Jesus' healing of the official son, just as the Father's words in creation have an instant impact, as soon as God speaks, all of creation comes into being, the same thing happens here with Jesus' words. Three short commands, but the result is instantaneous. Jesus speaks And this man is cured. He's healed. He's strengthened. He's made valid, if you will, for the first time in 38 years. And that, my friends, brings us to the gospel this morning. You see, the word that Jesus uses here to tell this man to get up, egeromai in the Greek, is the same word that the New Testament uses to describe the resurrection of Jesus. When the Gospels talk about God the Father raising Jesus from the dead, this is often the word that they use. And that actually gets us to the meaning of this sign. The reason why we've been looking at these signs in the Gospel of John is because each one of them signifies something to us about who Jesus is. This is the third one that John tells us about. And that use of that word, egeromai, I don't think is an accident. Because what John is telling us is that the same way that Jesus told this man to get up, to stand up, to raise himself, John is also making a connection to what Jesus has done for us. Because in the same way, through Jesus' own resurrection, just like with this man, 
he has given us a new lease on life as well. You see, we may not be invalid physically. Some of us are, some of us aren't. But what we all are is invalid spiritually. We are none of us strong enough, none of us healthy enough, none of us powerful enough to save ourselves. We are none of us adequate enough, agreeable enough, or acceptable enough to fix our relationship with God. In fact, the truth is that as sinful, fallen people, we are none of us deserving of God's love, attention, or care. And yet because of Christ, because of what he's done for us, because of the healing he's made possible for us, because of his sacrifice in our place on the cross, we've been raised, we've been restored, we've been resurrected, just like this man, the new life. That's the meaning of this sign here in John chapter 5. When water turns to wine, when the sick and dying recover, and when the invalid are raised like we have been, It's a sign that God's salvation has come, that his new creation has arrived, and that his coming restoration is not just coming in the future anymore. It's already begun. It's here. It's arrived. And it's happening in us through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of wonderful, merciful Savior that we have. And we're going to respond, actually, uh, to that grace by singing that song, Wonderful, Merciful Savior. I'd like to invite the worship team up at this time. We're going to use this song, actually, kind of as a prayerful reflection of sorts, um, in place of the prayer of application, uh, as we reflect on God's grace together this morning. And then after we sing, um, I'll close us in prayer and, and offer God's blessing. So I'd like to ask that you please stand and sing together.